the left, yes, we're on the left, on the left, just doing our best. On the left, yes, we're on the left, solidarity and fuck the rest. Bum, bada. All right, welcome everybody to episode three of series one of On the Left. And what we're focusing on this series is how people ended up here on the left. What are their personal stories? What can we glean from it? So I am Robin Marie Agerbeck. I am a history professor at Chico State. And joining me today is Elliot Harwell, and I'll let him introduce himself more fully. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, yes, so my name is Elliot Harwell. Um, I was a graduate student colleague of Robbins for uh, a while. I started graduate school in 2009 and um, think I ended up leaving graduate school and higher education probably about 2015, 2016 with my master's degree. Uh, since then, I have entered the amazing and exciting world of homeowners association management. Woo! Um, I know it's just... It's, no one grows up thinking they're going to be the person that writes the letters about someone's crappy yard. And, <laughs> and, yet, and yet you fall into that sort of job, and that is exactly what I have done. But, you know, I feel like you can be good at that. You know, I, I try my best to to be very good at it, but we can talk about what, what being good at that job means later. Um Sounds like a plan. So since we're here to talk about your political journey, let's begin with establishing where you are now. How would you summarize your politics? This could be uh, as short uh, or uh, elaborate as you like it to be. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good question, which is to say at this point, I in politics, I see a lot that I don't like and I see very little that I do like. Um, I would characterize myself on the left, which is to say I've, I've reached a point where um, I feel like I am beyond the liberal and conservative paradigm, uh, the dichotomy there. there. There certainly feels like there's something um, more and that neither, neither position is doing a sufficiently good job to solve a lot of the problems we as a society and, and, and government and culture are facing. Um, I, I will say that... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yes, I'm I'm somewhere I'm somewhere left of liberal, almost certainly at this point. Um, For sure, and we'll get to how far of a shift that is from wherever you were before. So let's start though at the very beginning. When do you first remember having thoughts, feelings on politics? And again, this doesn't have to mean acute analysis, right? No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, honestly, so. You know, I listened to as preparation. I listened to Jenna Jacobson's uh, podcast, which was episode number one in this series. So, Woo! so if any of you are listening to number three and did not listen to number one, I recommend you maybe go back. Um, you know, and so in a lot of senses, uh, I don't, I don't want to 
obviously this is a standalone episode. In a lot of ways, my own experiences map over Jenna's, but with the exception that I was uh, four years older than her. So in 2009, she was going into undergraduate, and in 2009, I was going into graduate school. Yeah, she's um, disgustingly young. We all hate her for it. Disgustingly young. God. Disgusting. My knees pop way too much. Um, <laughs> so so for me, like, you know, so when I was in – I grew up – I was born and raised in West Texas, um, and I was I was raised conservatively. But I will also add in this regard that it was conservative insofar as – I just simply wasn't presented with other options or ways of thinking about the world. Um, it wasn't that there was even really a discussion to be had. Um, I was raised very Christian. Uh, and it, there just wasn't, at least my household, there was an understanding in parts of the household that, um, you know, being gay or uh, another religion were, were sins. But at the same time, I was raised to be extremely compassionate, personally, individually. And so there was always this conflict between being told that one of my best friends, who is a Hindu, is going to hell, and also that he was my best friend and a cool guy and and a good person. Uh, One of the very first, I think, um, sort of conflicts i had as a as a small child was um we didn't celebrate halloween for instance um you poor uh, thing yes but you know <laughs> it's uh, like the best holiday if you're a and kid i have come to accept that it is truly the best holiday it is great and wonderful and um but we were driving through town um like october 31st one when i was like eight and it was a it was a windy day the 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 the, it seemed like a storm might be coming in, and we saw like a dad and two of their kids on the street, on a, two of his kids on the street, kind of furtively going door to door through these elements. And uh, it was remarked, I think, by perhaps my younger sister or my mom, that like, oh, good. Well, then, like, Halloween is sort of canceled for them, this sin. And on the flip side, I burst into tears because I was like, I could, I could see me and my family in, in that same situation. Like we obviously we weren't going door to door, but it was still an understanding that it was like, this is a dad and his kids, and they're trying to do something together, independent from like Halloween or sin, and and they're they're, they're trying to be be nice and good, and and yet, and and yet the elements are conspiring against them why is this why is this something to be happy about this is this is a thing to be sad about and so in that regard as i grew older there was always a uh, a personal empathy that went beyond my background right I, was, I sorry oh go right i'll go right ahead i'm I just find that um very interesting the conflict you talk about between on the one hand you are being told that you are t- technically supposed to believe that, say, your best friend's going to go to hell. Right. But on the other hand, the way that your family's raising you to actually act as a person doesn't compute with that. And I often found this conflict to just be all over this problem of uh, political ideologies. Many are the are the people who embrace politics or in this case specific beliefs that have do not map on to who they are and yes. it's so disorienting and confusing yes agreed and it's not um it's so 
it's it is a conflict and a dichotomy and a uh, you know uh, an unresolved tension that for a lot of people they just simply don't resolve it. That's that it's easier to say I can be both of these 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 things diametrically, or I can make exceptions or um, love and the sinner works- not the sin. Exactly. Um, that that that's absolutely part of the point. But for me, it was uh, you know it was more difficult than that because even if I could make exceptions, I understood that rules were also important. Um, and so, like, then what's the damn point if we're making exceptions? Or what's the point of your compassion if you really know in your heart that they're going to hell? Like, right. Absolutely. I always struggled with that myself in relationships with people who were religious when I was young and even much later through adulthood. For me, it kind of became a deal breaker in terms of friendships. It's like, look, you know, we can disagree about the nature of the universe and blah, blah, blah. But if you are either not sure that I'm going to hell or you think I am, I don't. I don't know how to proceed with this friendship because it just kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it seems like a, a sort of a a fundamental dehumanizing aspect. Or and also, or, you want something for nothing, so you think I'm great, but I might be going to hell. It's like, no, you don't. If you're gonna, we're gonna be friends here. You need to believe in a universal scheme where I don't suffer for eternity. You need to emphatically think I'm not going to a place called hell. Right. Right, exactly. Unless it's the um, Norse hell, which is just kind right, of right. Then we're just going to have a fun time for exactly. For the rest of <laughs> so, so then in this context, and I, I know that you've asked me about politics, and instead I'm talking a lot about religion, but I think it's important because in this, it's very easy to then map this over to look, the government, law enforcement, what have you. They hold these. They, they have these stated ideals that they support justice, um, that there's their belief in fairness, a um, uh, a very explicit and shared um, commitment to Christian theology or Christian history or Christian culture. And so, growing up, it was like I could understand that there were there were bad people, some of who were Christians and some of who weren't. But there was also a general understanding, again, as uh, a white cis male growing up in West Texas, that um, I didn't have conflicts with institutions. Um, I didn't have problems with the police or with uh, um, the the government or any of that. Um, And even as I went into graduate school, it's still, or not graduate school, but undergrad, um, this still wasn't really something that registered, you know. This was this was there were certainly disagreements about how the government should be run, um, but there was also a general understanding that I I trusted society and culture and institutions to generally be doing the right thing. Generally, be doing what they what they should be doing. And for me, the sort of inflection point was, believe it or not, something my university did my senior year of college. And they, uh, they made a big hoopla of students being responsible for for things around campus themselves. That there's a lot of student participation. And what college was this? This was Rice University in Houston. Um, it's you know one of several universities that style themselves the Harvard of the South. Um, you know, so who wants it, to be the Harvard of anything? Harvard sucks balls. Well, well, you know, Rice was pretty good, and I liked it. But my senior year, two things happened. Um, 
there was there was an unpopular um, uh, president of the university, and one there was a we, uh, students used to be able to schedule their own final exams. Um, it was you know you know you have a final exam you know you you're going to need to take it before you leave the university at some point for Christmas. Why don't you 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 have it within yourself to schedule it yourself and you can take it in in certain scheduled pre scheduled times um, and it'll be taken care of. You can do it. It was a very cool idea and it, to work it required a lot of input from students who helped proctor other people's exams. But it was also a very convenient process because it let people either take their exams really late and study more or take them super early and then get out of town. It was great. And then the university goes, well, we need to start having a discussion about how feasible this is. And so they invite all of the student input and then turn right around and go, well, all, based on all of our input, we've decided to get rid of them. And it was like, none of the input you got from students indicated that this was the case. You were, you, it became very clear that your intent was always to get rid of this for whatever reason. So it was and just a procedural it, it was, pageant. Yeah, a, a pageant that was done, though, so that they could, with a straight face, say, well, we really care about this. And we really wanted your input when it was so much the opposite. And then they did the same thing with a coffee house on campus. We had a student-run coffee house. They built a brand new green coffee house in the middle of this nice field. You know, so well, they say it's environmentally green, but you know what was greener than a building? The field that was there before they built it. <laughs> okay. And you know, and they, they made this big thing where they're like, well, it's going to be a central hub for students to do late night work. And we're going to make certain that we invite the existing student-run coffee house to, to run this coffee house. And within like a week, it was, no, it closes at 830. Um, no, it's actually super poorly built to do any sort of work. Uh, it's designed to be a set piece that, to show off to people who are coming to visit the the community. And also, we're going to um, we're going to ask Pete's Coffee to come in and uh, be the baristas here, rather than this agreement we made with the local coffee shop. And so it's like again, very clear. All of this was what you were going to do from the beginning. You were acted and invited us to participate in this pageant as, and you misled us. You led us to believe that students were involved, that it mattered. And then, and then, so that for me was the moment where I was like, actually. People in authority maybe, can be totally full of shit. Not, yeah. People in authority can be full of shit. And also maybe institutions don't necessarily care about you. They've got a plan and they need to sell it to you. And they're not actually asking for your input about how the plan should go. They're asking for your input to co-opt your feeling of being part of the plan. And so that was that was me going into graduate school was this slight beginning of starting to think. And again, I, I understand that this sounds extremely irresponsible of me, which is that I am 22 years old going to graduate school. And I'm like, actually, maybe sometimes governments don't lie to you. Um, <laughs> you know? But you know what? You got to you got to start where you start. Right? Thank you. Yes. Uh, you got to start where you got to start. Exactly. And this exact, you know, you, there's other seniors at your undergrad who noticed or, you know, were 
aware of these same things, but they didn't, you know, in, I'm sure they're not all <laughs> now. So you, but I'm you also did, they're not running ancient ways at this point. either. You, so, <laughs> but you, the point was that you did, you did see this and you did come to an analytical conclusion about it that, yeah, like it seems like small beans in, in some regards, but that's where you were and you noticed what was happening where you were. And yeah, that is fair. I will, I will accept that. And it's very, you know, it's very difficult to start this journey. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to kind of produce documents of how, look, almost nobody ends up wherever they end up on the political spectrum because they just, you know, sit down and read a bunch of books one day and they're like, well, obviously this is the nature well, of reality. Well, yeah, exactly. This this book that this book describes to me my perceived reality better than my own perceptions of reality. Right, that exactly. Like, people, I, but, but not for a lot. Uh, I just read Das Kapital and I'm like, done, right? <laughs> um, so this is your story of where reality met where you were. That is fair. That is fair. So then you go to grad school. Is that yes. the next place in our story? That would, that would be the next place. And I will say that graduate school was a radicalizing influence in two ways. Um, and very distinct ways. And that's what I want to emphasize is there's one, there's the content. You know, I, I go into graduate school and I am immediately tasked with teaching a lot of stuff on early modern history and over time, um, 19th and 20th century colonialism and imperialism and then po and then post-colonialism you know well, i guess post-colonial thought I, you understand what i'm saying and it is setting aside theory it is difficult to be a ta uh with assigned readings talking about the absolute brutality of 19th century imperialism um, you know, these first person documents, uh, these first person sources where that are the, the source of what ends up being heart of darkness, talking about Belgian officials, not just like, like maiming children because they haven't received their rubber quota and it, it, it in a horrific, Horrific language made all the more horrific for its detachment. That they have these children put their hands up against posts and then beat them with the butts of their rifles, so they don't even they don't even chop the hands off. They they are crushing them with a device not meant to do this. And you do not read this, and you do not read documents like this repeatedly. You do not read you know discourse on colonialism from Fanon, which is truly like my greatest, most enjoyed essay. Um, and you do not read these things and go, well, actually, the world's pretty okay. <laughs> these are all exceptions. These are, you, they're, you know, we, I remember we, we in graduate school, uh, I think that we had slightly different, uh, I think we were in different years, but we read um, on the structure of scientific revolutions. You, you know, you over time, you start to build up more and more exceptions, and it tells you that your paradigm isn't right, and it, it needs to shift. Right. There's and, too many exceptions. There's too many anomalies. There's too many anomalies. And so, and so then you, you, know, you just have too many anomalies that are fact, that are, are documents that you have read and pictures you have seen of things that have not happened to you, but things that have been done in your name. Things that have been done, perhaps not in your name, but by someone that is 
ostensibly within your same culture group or civilization or religion. And you see that there are, I don't even want to necessarily say hypocrisy, because hypocrisy, again, assumes that there is a a divergence or a dichotomy or a, a lie in these diametrically opposite beliefs. And we've already established earlier in this talk that we feel that people can believe two different things very easily and just never analyze, analyze it. But eventually you, you start to see the world or parts of the world or empires or nation states or governments or armies kind of uh, for what they are, you know? And, and I think uh, a sort of subtle way of getting at that was uh, my initial focus was early modern empires. And so it was very, very reasonable and acceptable and not not controversial to say, look, an early modern empire is its power is predicated on its ability but to monopolize violence. You know, and that it's that you're centralizing your your ability to inflict harm on others on a centralized military or police force that is able to exert the sovereign's will. And it's like, oh, that's great. That's a 17th century empire. That makes sense. But here in the 20th century, we're different. And it's like, are we? Are like, we? actually, the things that I have described here seem like it continues to go. And this is, this is you can, you can even hold this position without getting into, like, Foucault. You know? Yeah. You oh, you absolutely. Don't, you don't need Foucault. You don't need Foucault. You don't I mean, need- he's tons of fun, whatever, but you don't need him. <laughs> right. I will, Yeah. Like, look, Foucault is tons of fun. Foucault, but the problem with Foucault is, is that... He is the hammer that allows you to see everything as a knell. And surely at yes, some point, true. surely at some point, not everything is Foucauldian, you know, <laughs> or, or, rather, or yeah. rather the thing in graduate school that I became annoyed with was that people would tell me that everything was Foucauldian. And so you would see that so much of discourse since, you know, for the past 20 years is people taking smaller and smaller slices of the primary source material being like, well, this too is Foucauldian. Like let's let's analyze how uh, rice is being distributed in 17th century North India and describe how this is Foucauldian. It's like <laughs> that is like, so academic. Even the it goddamn is. point. Like why? What? It is. I understand you've got to write an article because that is the the nature of the beast here. But also, nothing is gained or learned from this analysis. Yeah, this is not helpful in any way. <laughs> and this actually. I will use this as a segue to get to the second radicalizing thing, and I think Excellent. this is more interesting, and that is the structure itself of graduate school. Like, not the content that I was learning, but the fact that I have signed on to this organization that um, is dedicated to the pursuit of truth, um, you know, and, and what truth means, we, we obviously have disagreements about, but the, the implication is, is that you want to know what truly happened in the past, or you want to understand things such that they help people in the present. Um, and so there's a general sense that you, you have a mission of one sort or another. Um, and again, to say it, to do good, I think we too easily you know, throw that word around or ascribe morality to things that are completely devoid of it. But there's still a sense that you, you are trying to learn truth, and that truth in and of itself is a good thing. And that even if you can't find the truth because the source material doesn't exist or because it's just lost to time, that you're still doing something mm-hmm. that is – maybe going to help people in the present one way or another. Some value. It has some value. And in this, to do this, 
we have created a system that is a guild system where you have very singular strong personalities that dictate the fates of people around them based completely on their whims or their personality or who they like or who they dislike. Uh, it is this upper echelon of, um, you know, this professorial class who gets to, to lecture and teach and then uh, hand things off to the graduate students who uh, work long hours, uh, do a lot of the fundamental teaching in terms of language, in terms of organization, in terms of structure, in terms of analysis. And then... Um, Despite being so critical to the system working, graduate students continue to be treated as uh, second or third tier components of the system. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'll say that um, the crows are coming home to roost. The professorial class is getting pushed out because we have increased, uh, we have a, a growing administrative class. Um, and so in that regard, um, that, that gives a very clear sign who the professor should have sided with and stood with. Absolutely. Um, and but, to interject yep. on multiple, multiple points when graduate students were trying to organize, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, over and over again, the vast majority of faculty let them down and did just no sense of solidarity with their graduate students. You know, uh, one frustrating thing that I saw in practice was the how professors treated maternity leave that um, one frustrating thing for me was to see that um, we got very good paternity leave in our department by the time I was done there, which was great. I'm, I'm glad that we could see moms and dads have time off. And yet the guys were suddenly able to ha take this time off. But a lot of the women who had children in the program still continued to leave. Uh, they still continued to not receive the support they needed. They still received emails from their professors that were like, you might be on maternity leave, but I still have expectations for you. Right. You got to get on it um, at some you point. You got to get on it. Yeah, exactly. And so it became this very weird thing where I'm like, I'm glad that we had some sort of progress. And I'm also disappointed to see that we've had progress in this one area that is great. And I'm, I'm good for gender equality, but it, it wasn't the critical thing. Like it wasn't the thing that was going to help make us a more equitable program. Right. Absolutely. And so, and you know, it became this thing where there were just, it was, a, it's, it's a inherently hierarchical system that was not based and not run on truth or, or wisdom or a desire to make the world better. It was made on interpersonal relationships and you would have to hope that the person you were involved with or that was your mentor or was that your was a good person or if not a good person, that they would be good to you and that you were on their team so they could be bad to other people. Right. Um, and the amount of power yes. that advisors have over their graduate students is so unaddressed and it's so resisted like really acknowledging it and trying to, to think of ways to deal with it is so resisted by you know the established tenure track faculty or or even you know not tenure track <sighs> you know they come up with all sorts of ex excuses like you know this relationship's so important and blah 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 and we can't bureaucratize it and but at the heart of it there is just this sentimental power grab or not power grab they already have the power holding on to that power 
where, like you said, if you didn't get along with your advisor, even if they were a perfectly good person, but if you clashed, that's going to make your graduate school experience so much harder. And it might you might end up leaving. Yeah, it might it might be the end of it. Full yeah. stop. And and, and I that's will say, fucking crazy. The structure and again, and this kind of gets at this returns to the first question where you were asking where um where you were asking where I fall on the on the the spectrum, and I I kind of had a a non-committal answer, and this is going to get to that. You start to see things like this, and you realize that the structure is actually working the way it's intended to. Absolutely. Um, that, for instance, these 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 professors aren't betraying the cause; they have been brought up and inculcated in a system that abused them and made them. Engage and then rewarded them in a way that they are invested in its continued operation. So they have now achieved a modicum of power, and that gives, and they want to hold on to it. Right. And they will um, sell the underlings underneath them up the river as they see fit yeah. because they think that will placate the Moloch that is above them. Uh, and that's actually not how it works. Um, we've, you know, the problem continues to get worse until you find that you're, 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 there aren't any tenured professors anymore. They're all just adjuncts. Right. Turns out administration doesn't give. Yeah, to an administrator. Yeah, to an administrator. Actually, your your rights and responsibilities that make you unfireable, professor. That's that's actually not a good thing. They, they want to see that go away. They want you to be the last generation of people with a protected tenure class position because you cost money and you're a liability. Yep. And so the sooner you go away, the sooner that they can hire adjuncts, the sooner they can um, they can um, grub hub this, this institution so that That's it is – <laughs> Well, you know, it's, yeah, it's because it becomes entirely, entirely about the relationship with a contractor who has no rights and can be replaced. And you've created a system that has created so many well-educated graduate students that they will hungrily devour themselves so that then they can get this little piece of cheese. Yep. It, so, it becomes a doggy uh, dog world. It's like Lord of the Flies in the academy. And so that experience, so alongside... This is how empires work. They they divide you up, they break you apart, they they pitch you against each other, and they always, always, always amass more power for themselves. Yep. Contrasted with, and this is how my department is functioning in in minutiae in in in, right. in 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 a model in a tiny form. You know, like, yeah. It's like we're not we're not physically torturing people. Let's be clear, but we yeah, we are using similar strategies as sort of just uh, destroying morale. Yeah, destroying morale. Um, and sure, it is. It might not be. Uh, I think I think the concept of violence gets overused a lot. Believe it or not, um, I think that it's very easy for someone on the internet to say this was. This this thing I read or this thing that happened to me that in no way involved physical or mental distress was still violence inflicted upon me. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we overuse that concept, it it takes away it from it. it dilutes it to where violence then becomes any sort of unhappy feeling. And so I don't want to say that the graduate department inflicts violence upon you. But at the same time, however, however, like they control all the money. They give you very little of it. You're receiving a, you know, it's a constant, constant fight between you. 
the psychological and interpersonal harm that this sort of organization thrives on and necessitates on, that's a that's definitely a type of harm. And if you want to start thinking about it in terms of violence afflicted upon the body and the soul, then by all means, like having just said, I think we overuse the term violence. What I want to say is, is that after I left graduate school, I did not do anything for a year. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had a job. I would go to this job running a country club slash HOA every day. And I would come home from that job and I would sit doing nothing with no thoughts in front of my computer for three or four hours every night. And then I would go to bed. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you what things I read, what things I did, what games I enjoyed during that time period, because it was just a null. It was a time of healing where I needed to um, do nothing and convalesce. And it wasn't until about a year after I had truly taught my last class and left and, and, and done this that I began to feel creative and to feel as if I had become something akin to a human again. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and during this time of, I don't know if it's the last few years of grad school going into after you're feeling like you recovered from your convalescing, which makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people do that. Actually, a lot of people, when they leave, they, it's a rough, it's a, it's a rough year. It is, follows it. it is trauma. It is trauma and it is traumatic. And we don't really talk. I mean, we do, are talking about it right now, but we don't understand it as a concept like that until you have perspective. When you're in it, you're just like, this is how the things are. Right. Um, absolutely. But I interrupted, but I agree with you. Trauma, I think, is the right concept. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, when you're talking about violence, I often feel like that debate is really, it comes down to, in, in many cases, when, when it's being had on the left, it comes down to semantics almost, right? I think, I, I think so. Because people don't, if you, like, you don't really disagree with the heart of what people are saying when, when they say, well, this inflicted violence on me, even though it's not physical violence. It's just the use of the word that can be problematic in certain ways. And then I tend to come down on the side of, let's just expand the meaning of violence um, and recognize that this cuts in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and I would, I would include, this is a little off topic, but just to clarify what I'm saying, when debates come up about, uh, you know, riots that happen, um, uh, say, uh, around protesting police brutality, and people say destroying property isn't violence. I'm like, no, it is. It's a form of violence. In this case, it's justified. Yeah. (laughs) Like, let's think about it like that, right? And and viewers or or listeners, what you have not observed here is is that while Robin was talking, I was emphatically nodding my head. Um, (laughs) Like, yes. And you've heard the same... You, you, even within the words that I just used, you heard me negotiating and criticizing myself for the use of violence, even as I used it in all the ways that I intended to, you know? So, like, you know, if I agree. And, and I also agree with that, that, like, violence has a lot of different forms. Um, destruction of property is definitely a type of violence. It is not uh, just something that is necessarily inflicted upon uh, the human body. Um, and bullying is a form of violence, like say yeah. not beating people up, but just picking on, on them, which I, I totally agree it is. And like clearly smashing the window of a Starbucks is violence, yeah. but in, on our liberal imagination, we can only think of violence as bad. And I think that is where we get tripped up 
with a lot of this semantic debate, right? And I, I think this this returns to the, our elite motif going through this program, which is holding two diametrically opposite opinions. We One of the things that I think really describes our country and society is a belief that we used violence to get here. And now we're done with violence. Everything is perfect and right forever. We, right. we had a revolution. We threw the tea in the party, the tea, to, through the tea in the bay. We killed the British. And that's it. That's it. No more, no more violence ever again. Uh, violence is actually bad, except when it was used by our predecessors. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't even a, this isn't even a, a uniquely American thing. Like you, you see the same thing in Chinese history. There's this great adage that the 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 rebel that wins dies the emperor, and the rebel that loses dies a rebel. Like, <laughs> no, like, that's, like there's there's the proof is in the pudding. Did did you use violence well enough? Um, so, were you successful in your application? Were you successful? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I definitely want to get to um, the question of, did this intersect with other things you might have okay, been watching okay, so. or viewing or consuming? And when does this happen? Because so, for our viewing audience, this is something that Elliot and I love to talk about. <laughs> excellent. Good. Okay. Yes. So for our listening audience... Um, Robin and I have talked at great length about a wonderful television series called Black Cells, (laughs) which I truly, truly, deeply love, and I truly think is perhaps the greatest story ever told. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I I don't know about particularly Black Cells tells it, um, but... I mean, the golden age of the pirates is probably one of the greatest yes. fucking so, stories ever told. Yeah. So, so for a little context totally here, it's fucking it, amazing. Yeah, it is a four-season series on Stars. Still only uh, four. It was only four, yes, and it's concluded. Um, it is ostensibly a uh, prequel to Treasure Island, where a lot of the characters that are in Treasure Island, like Long John Silver, Billy Bones. Um, Captain Flint, whose treasure they are looking for in Treasure Island, are all the main characters of Black Cells. And it is the golden age of piracy where um, a a pirate republic has been erected and is trying to navigate um, the literal and, and social waters of staying independent outside of the British Empire, who has decided they are increasingly interested in the area and want to reassert their dominance. Right. And when uh, did you start watching this? So, so yeah, okay. So, so listeners, um, one of the reasons that we're even doing this podcast is because I described watching Black Cells as a radicalizing moment for me. Which and I Robin, thought was amazing, amazing. and horrible. <laughs> and, and, and so instead, I have spent 30 minutes being like, actually, let me tell you about all of these other ways that I was already radicalized. And so in that I regard, great. I, I wanted to know that background, but we did have to get to this eventually. But we did have to get to this. And so this is the most so, amazing form of radicalization I've ever heard. In my life. So I, one thing that I do want to preface this with is, is that anyone who, who says something is the greatest story ever told, as I just did, or who was I that was Jesus. I, I am I am absolutely cribbing that language. It is the you know that is or anyone who says that this one work of art truly deeply deeply influenced them. I always immediately think of Atlas Shrugged and how that's like a horrible horrible work of art to have your life completely orientated around, and that right. has you know and you, and you know it. People say this, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, they were these two books, Ayn Rand, that was, she was so, and they use it as a way of justifying 
kind of shitty shitty personalities and shitty lives. Oh, and, very and, shitty personalities. And I will also add, it feels in my mind a way of abrogating any sort of responsibility for the self or for your own thoughts. That you can say, I do not need to be critical because I have I have I have gone to the mountain. I have seen this work of art itself. It has described to me in all ways and in all exacting detail what a good life is. And I now no longer need to think about this. I now have the fountainhead. Yeah, it's like the asshole's Bible. The asshole's Bible. And in a lot of ways, this is also, I mean, and the Bible is the right word. People also orientate their lives around the Bible. But at least the Bible has a lot of stories in it. And at least it lays out a more overarching morality to one's life that is not simply the idea that greed is good um, and that selfishness is important. And so I want to have this preface where... I recognize saying something is the best and saying that this one thing was super influential is really problematic. Sure, sure, um, sure. So having said that, um, so I started to watch Black Cells, and I really – there are good spoilers that I, I do not want to share but okay. because I want to people to watch it themselves. But what I will say is, is that it served in a microcosm a lot of the thoughts and ideas – that I had had in graduate school, and I experienced this after graduate school okay. by several years. Mm-hmm. So probably at this point, I've been out of graduate school for four or five years, and I probably watched it two or three years ago. So we were into my my period of healing um, and and thinking through my own thoughts, and its premise from the beginning. But that it continues to really – it starts off as it seemingly a, a typical pirate story. You know, It seems as if the, the, the elite motif or the main driving story uh, is that um, you have a, captain, a pirate captain named Flint who has learned the schedule of a Spanish treasure galleon called uh, uh, the Urca. Um, and he is spends the entire first season moving heaven and earth, murdering people, lying to people. He's a shitbag. What was that? He's a shitbag. He's a shitbag, but you know, but he's so <laughs> compelling too. Like he's got a pl- and and against this, it's an antihero is such a central character in modern like yeah. I, I, entertainment, I right? Yes, yes, and and what makes it so good is is that in many we hear antihero and we think, oh, he's he's a shithead, but he's the hero of the story, and that's kind of true in this case. But also, a lot of the things he does are truly heroic. He is immensely skilled at what he does. He is driven by by motivations and desires and and goals that are just larger than any one man. Yeah, absolutely. He he has very, uh, very. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just large. <laughs> so I can yes, come up with so much gravitas and so yeah, much- so much gravitas. He is very. He's not ambitious in sort of the typical ways. He is ambitious in this very principled, very abstract sense. At- and it makes him so much the more compelling and also so much the more dangerous because it makes him so much more willing to sacrifice other people's lives and even his own life for the fulfillment of this greater goal. 
And so by the by the halfway through season two, it becomes very clear that it's no longer about the damn gold. Uh, it's about what the gold is going to let uh, our man Captain Flint do, and that is his full and willing plan to prosecute a war against the British Empire. That he is going to use this treasure, and he is going to unify the pirates, and he is going to free slaves so that they can break this yoke that and this violent system that is called civilization. And um, it's, it, I mean, it spirals out of control in amazing ways where they, they are attempting to have a slave revolt. They are attempting to destroy the British. They are, by the fourth season, he, they, they, are, they, have, they have ransacked ostensibly safe ports of call along the eastern seaboard. Um, and it's, it's, it's very, very good, but... And and this then gets Robin to the point that our our central point of disagreement on this, which I think feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things that I found so compelling about about Black Cells was its willingness to frame civilization as embodied by the British Empire as the villain. Mm-hmm. Full full stop. Like civilization is the villain, and the people who on behalf of civilization are framed in such a way that in any other story, they would be the heroes. They are doing the things that you are supposed to do as an imperial administrator, as an agent of the crown, as an as an instrument of law and order. And the show makes it very clear that they're wrong. Or rather, that what they are trying to do is they are advancing a way of life and a way of thinking about the world that is violent, it is homogenous, and it cannot, under any circumstance, allow any disagreement with it. That its goal, and, and the story is, wove, is woven both textually but also metatextually. There are people within the story itself who are concerned about crafting legacies. They want. They know that they need to sell the story of their lives and of their mission, be they pirates or empire, to a wider audience. And the empire needs to do this as a way of showing it always wins and that its way of understanding the world is always correct, that everyone is a citizen of the empire. They, are, they, just, are, they just don't know it yet. They're a subject, they're, really. They're a subject. Yeah, precisely. Subject is far better the term. A good, good point. And... For the pirate factions, it is more important that they are able to, even in the face of their own destruction, articulate a way of life that is that is outside the British Empire, that is outside the norms and strictures of what they are told is possible and impossible, that they, that they don't need to accept as fact what, what they grew up learning and knowing. That they that they can be something more um, and better outside of the empire, outside of the concept of civilization. That they can make their own world in a distinctly powerful way. But I, I, think, think, the, uh, oh. I think one of the the best things about the show is that it has it has uh, all the different kind of ways that that can cut. Um, Almost, and and then I'll sort of 
point on the one element I think is a little missing, but uh, the 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 homogenizing of gender is there, of race, of sexuality, right? You have all of these characters that are exploring or are pushing against those restrictions of civilization. So it's very rich like that. And it does it in a very believable way. The characters are believable, yes. um, et cetera. Uh, the class dynamic, I feel like is just a little missing, which I, which I think is our, our main disagreement, right? Agreed. Because like the, main, the main character has this aristocratic background and that just, it's just weird to me because all of the pirates were like bottom of the fucking barrel um from from the atlantic world right there there were no former aristocratic pirate captains so that just sits with me a little bit awkwardly and but there are definitely other people there that come from poor backgrounds i just wish that it was highlighted more that the pirates of the atlantic world were were rebelling against grinding fucking poverty um sailors were incredibly skilled and they, they were paid like shit and they had this incredibly dangerous job where they were treated like shit on on the ships, whether they were merchant ships or um, British ships, you know, for, from the empire. And in the primary source documents comes up, up again and again. They're like, you know, we're tired of being treated like shit. Like, why, why try to keep on living like this when even if we are going to get caught and hung by the British Empire within a number of years, at least we're, we have a fucking decent life. And so we're there's down, this yeah, class consciousness that's so strong in the historical record that is, it's not absent in the show. I just feel like it should have been there a lot more considering its importance. And, and yeah, no, I agree with you, which is to say, you're right. The class element is not as pronounced. I will say in Flint's defense, I don't think he is actually truly aristocracy. I think he had a commission in the British Navy. That's true. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't have a title um, or anything. Touche. Uh, but, but he, he did come from the officer corps of the British Empire. Exactly. So that's something. And, and so, His life is comfortable. And so in that regard, you do certainly have situ uh, a situation where this former officer of the British Empire is claiming to be the, the only man that can save save this pirate republic right exactly but in it's in it's in the show's defense i will also point out that people criticize him for exactly that within the show that mm -hmm. there are yes. there are freed slaves and and such that explicitly say you you don't get to tell me what to do yeah. um but I, but I will add also is is that um at least in my take one point that you pointed out to me is is that the definition of what civilization is in the show is often nebulous uh, or not as defined as it could be. And I like that, which is to say it allows you to then as the audience to understand that everything that you are watching in terms of gender and uh, homosexuality versus heterosexuality versus um, uh, poverty versus slavery, that all of this is part and parcel of the same fight. Um, and it, and that is true. It's but intersectionality. It's intersectionality. I mean, and that's uh, hell. At some point, one of the you know the pirates point out that that the, you know they're not all free until the slaves are also free. Like there's actually there is intersectionality, and um, but I will say that uh, you know a few years on from having watched the show the first time, that I could see that um, a viewer could easily want to have more specificity mm -hmm. and more acknowledgement of the specific things rather than a sort of. Uh, more general or or nebulous sense of of civilization.
Well, let me ask you this as a way of segueing to our next question, which is thinking about that issue of how nebulous or specific the idea of civilization is. The next question is, what do you think we can do if we can do anything to create a culture and environment that brings more people to the left? And maybe we'll start to, you can start to discuss that question by whether or not you think it's a, a strength of the show that it kind of lets people fill in the blank with their personal experience and therefore is less aggressive or it feels less demanding of of the viewer like you need to think this this is reality um perhaps 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 that's the case so uh, yes there is before i answer this and i've thought a lot about this Listeners, I want to to sum up the show in my mind with a tweet that I found and uh, my my last argument for why you should watch this. Um, so Alexandra Edwards is a PhD, uh, uh, I think at Georgia University, um, uh, on the other side of the world for me, and um, she tweeted at one point this sort of great archetypal tweet of the show that Black Cell season one is pirates like sex and money. And Black Cell Season 4 is armed revolution and queer love are equally powerful means of reshaping our world. <laughs> right. The show is truly committed to that. It's it's very committed to showing both that violence is important and necessary in carving out a, a new space. And at the same time, and violence and going to, you know, not even not even metaphorical violence, violence, violence with arms. Yeah, um, call back to earlier. Uh, call back to earlier. But also that being able to articulate a different type of love, being able to articulate even a different type of structure to society. That, to again harken back, civilization will consider these things to be violent itself as well. Mm -hmm. That the mere creation of a different way of thinking about things is an affront that civilization must violently respond to. The difference here is is the the problem that I have now to answer the most pressing question is the answer is I don't know what we can do. Yeah. Um, I'm not a pirate. I'm not. <laughs> I know. I'm not, I'm not either. And I'm not skilled in inflicting violence or bummer. breaking. Violence. I know. I mean, neither. Um, that's the thing. I I tend to be very attracted to these TV shows where violence is so central. The FYI, listeners, Peaky Blinders and Vikings are my favorite shows. <laughs> And I just yeah, told you about Warrior. Which I is am so deeply bourgeois and, and oh, I don't know, also decent. I don't fucking know for what, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 21st century white female and violence makes me very uncomfortable if I actually encounter it. And, and yet, and yep, yet. Yep, and yet, and this gets me to the point is, is that I like that Black Cells argues that being able to create a different narrative about the world is as critical as actually trying to create that world with your hands. That it is also a type of creation. Mm -hmm. It is also a way, a type of affirmation. It is also something that civilization will despise and attempt to destroy, however it is. And so in that regard, you too, by just articulating a world that is different and good and better than what exists, are part of the fight. And that appeals to me. And yet at the same time, I'm like, no, that can't be it. Like that, <laughs> that's not enough. You can't. Right. And that, and I think this gets also then at the, to the, to the end of, uh, I think that black cells kind of understands this even in its final episode, which is 
it creates an almost alternate history where you are so eager and desirous to see Flint's efforts win. Mm-hmm. They, in the fourth season, they are drawing up plans to land 15,000 men at Boston and burn it to the goddamn ground. And you want to see it. The show has at this point radicalized you or convinced you or shown you in such a way that the fight that Flint is leading is good and just and it is necessary and important. And for a moment, you convince yourself that you will get to see this happen. Mm -hmm. And then the show goes, but actually, this is a prequel to Treasure Island. And no, 15,000 men don't burn down Boston. And no, this doesn't happen. And ultimately... It's very brave, I have to say, of the show to let... to, to to do that let down in that way and it, and it, and it, it makes everything so well. it makes everything else that comes before more interesting in a sense because it's not just a typical victory story yeah. right and so in in hindsight i i appreciate the um courage of say inglorious bastards to be willing to be like actually in our story hitler dies like yeah. that guy <laughs> it is Hitler's pretty amazing died. But you know what? Um, this is interesting. I've been listening to the West Wing thing, which is all about um, ripping on the West Wing, which is yeah. fabulous uh, and amazing in every way. But there's a lot of discussion in that show about the West Wing as liberal porn in the yes. sense that you, it's not, you know, it pretends here and there you have characters that challenge the standard central liberal view of the Bartlett White House, but not really, right? The show in, in its essence, at n- in no sustained way, does it create... Uh, any sense of doubt or confusion or conflict within its liberal viewers. Now, there's moments in Black Sails which are leftist porn, straight up. Like, they're so fucking satisfying, particularly the end of season two. Oh, my God. It's like, yes, I just watching yes. everything. Uh, but yes. at the Truly, end of the day, yes. it does rise it. above leftist porn because yes. it does challenge you as well. It doesn't just show you what you want to see. Like, one thing I will say, you know, the one of the points of capitalist realism is is that capitalism is always able, uh, and our our modern society is works very hard to incorporate and defang any sort of criticism of it. Mm-hmm. That it's impossible to get out to a position that is outside of capitalism because it incorporates the uh, loyal opposition automatically. And so, in that regard, hearing that about. Um, uh, one that is also one of the things that that is shown and depicted and acknowledged in Black Cells is watching as these very controversial and uh, incredible attempts to reform the empire are suddenly made possible and are committed to and done by the empire because it becomes another way for the British to express their power. Um, they can suddenly they can suddenly start forgiving pirates and, and forgiving debts because it's about preserving empire, not about the concept of actually being guilt-free. Right. It's uh, like, uh, you know, Starbucks saying, let's have a talk about race. Right. That does nothing. <laughs> does nothing. Starbucks <laughs> still nothing. exists. Race still exists. But then they um, get to look like they're anti. Yeah. yeah. During, uh, during BLM in this past year, the amount of corporate bandwagging is just i mean it's weird because on one way it is a sign of progress because it's like you know some mega 500 companies like oh we can't you know we have to be looking like we give two shits about 
you know, black saw, poor people. But on the other hand, it's like oh. I saw a meme yesterday that was uh, like a like a fit like a a picture of a uh, boardroom of people with the caption uh, says, um, "As a corporation, we support gay marriage," and they had crossed out um, we and they uh, crossed out support gay marriage and put our anti coup. Uh, like, you know, it's, uh, like oh, we are we are no longer doing that. We are now good and liberal in this other way. Yeah, um, we don't think you should. See, we don't think uh, you yeah, should storm uh, the Capitol. Yeah, our message, our messaging is different. Like we uh, support gay marriage, and also there are limits to what is acceptable within our society. <laughs> right, right. Like, totally. Okay, okay. So, so to return to this, yes, I think that your point about uh, the West Wing is is that always the characters in the West Wing are not there to challenge the West Wing, but are there to affirm that Bartlett is a good and just president. And that and, the, the ideology of the show is called practical idealism. Yes, it's practical idealism, which is which makes no goddamn sense. No, not at all. Um, and especially, again, <laughs> again, our, our other leitmotif, the, the, the diametrically opposite fusion of, of, of the fusion of diametrically opposite ideas. That you can both be practical and also an idealist at the same time. Yep, you want you want to have your cake and eat um, it too. And so, um, in that regard, I really admire black cells because uh, they're far more. Uh, which side are you on? Um, there's there's the British Empire, and it's even beyond the British Empire. The British Empire spends three seasons ostensibly fighting a war with the Spanish. Mm-hmm, right. And There's multiple the fourth... empires in the system. Yeah. Exactly. And then at the fourth season, suddenly the British and the Spanish declare a truce so that they can go right. fuck up the pirates. Right. And so it's suddenly, it's not just about the idea of empire or of civilization is beyond the British. It is a concept that these militaries and these governments buy into that they cannot, that they will put down their arms and join forces against the thing that is really so scary and bad. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so then what can we do? I'm well, the point of black cells, I think, or one of the arguments in black cells and the argument and the thing that I've seen in my undergraduate and the thing that I saw in my graduate school is, is that a lot of the time institutions and organizations of people and structures aren't good. They aren't there to help <laughs> individuals. Um, yeah. They they exist to reaffirm their own power, to homogenize everything so that it is incorporated within that hierarchy and within that power, and to destroy dissent. Whether that dissent is. Uh, wanting to make certain that you have control over which coffee people you have contracted to run this building or whether when you can take your exams or who you answer to when you grade papers or who signs your paycheck. Structures and organizations, I just, I don't, and then in my, my readings and stuff as a graduate student, I don't ever see them working out in the long run for mm-hmm. individual people. Even institutions that exist very clearly with with a strong initial stance towards existing to help small people, right. they're still the nature of a of a, like the nature of a welfare state. Absolutely, I mean, whatever you the- defy a nature welfare state, it's about the it's about the allocation of scarce resources. It's about yeah. determining who gets stuff and who doesn't. The nature of structure results in certain. Power dynamics. Yes, it just exactly. does. It, it just, just does. does. And so the only thing that I can think of is, is 
is is trying to as individuals understand that we we do not need to go with what the prevailing structure tells us we need to and, and trying to maybe demystify these structures right Precisely. demystify these institutions as Precisely. much as we can and i think one thing that like you said black sales does well is it shows that there are multiple ways to do that and and i i will yes and i will say even as but but even as you say you do not need to follow this structure you need to be aware that the structure is going to push back against you. Yeah, absolutely. You can say, you know what? I have decided that that um, I don't buy into uh, relationships between just between two people. Mm-hmm. I will buy into polymory instead. Mm-hmm. And you can. But society is going to push back on that. You will receive, there will be people around you who will judge you for this. It could have professional repercussions for you. Right. You can say, I no longer buy into what, what I now understand to be not true reified science in fact, but I no longer buy into the, the gender dichotomy. I think that I think that it's a spectrum. I think that there's more than just male and female. You can absolutely do that. You can choose to present in different ways. You can choose to change that. But society is still going to push back against that. It's still going to say there are things that we accept and things that we don't accept. And you are really goddamn towing the line. Right. And um, um, to add to that, obviously, an essential part of being on the left is being opposed to capitalism. But we can't we can't choose to live outside of it, right? It's a, it's a classic, you know, right wing. It's like, oh, oh yes. so you're like a socialist, so why do you still go to Target or whatever? You know, like, why don't you drop out? Eat? We would die. I I, I actually saw. Um, oh my god, I can't think of a it's the it's the right well now. it's the well guy. It's the comic the uh, the guy and the, the 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 peasant. He there's a peasant saying, yeah, maybe we should like improve society somewhat. And then it's truth rising out of the well, this guy going, and yet you live in a society. Interesting. (laughs) To live within the society means that you cannot express any criticism of society because you have automatically bought in and approve of it just by existing. Well, and that's a lie. That's, you know, that's the joke of the comic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, sorry. I I misunderstood. (laughs) Um, I was like, but wait, I'm. No, exactly, and but you you can still oppose, but there's this there's this misunderstanding that that uh, from people who are not on the left and very often are on the right that it's not about that you can't opt out, and it's not about personal morality politics. It's about how we are all trapped necessarily, right? Uh, but anyways, I that was all excellent but i want to get to the last two questions here since we're okay. getting a little bit over what is the worst thing about being on the left and after that what is the best um the worst i got to say is the fact that it always feels like it always feels like the left is really good at destroying itself when it yes. like all the time always regardless of when you read about it in history regardless of what you see on the internet it's just like um you know, it's a combination of. Uh, oh, you know, I, I wish I could remember some of the jokes, but you know, it's 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 just very much the, a constant, constant civil war. It feels like of people tearing each other down over over purity. Um, purity politics gets thrown around a lot as a concept, and it really feels like there's a constant uh, tension where uh, that you need that only 
that that constantly perfect is the enemy of good or done and so and perfect is always the thing that's supported and i say this even as i hate the concept of being a practical idealist uh you know like yeah like like you know that's that's a stupid concept and also at some point you do need to follow the cake song of accepting a little sin to just get the road moving um totally and i think why the left is like that is a constant conversation on the left. Yeah, no, yeah, and I'm certain that and there there have been that the, yeah, they I think there's a lot on the left for it. I think there's multiple reasons, but, but there there are multiple reasons, but it it all comes into the or it all creates this problem of yeah, we're just fucking horrible at putting aside our differences and bind bounding together. And I think part of it is that since we're always losing <laughs> That people become very convinced. Everyone's looking for the recipe, the potion, like the magic Good point. incantation to make it work this time. And since there's so much, so much of a history of failure, they become convinced that, you know, this, you know, I, I know, I know at least a few leftists who hate Bernie Sanders because they're like, he's not a real socialist. And that just boggles my mind. But at the same time, their analysis leads them to believe that any compromise with the bourgeois state, which obviously Bernie Sanders represents because he's a fucking senator in that bourgeois state, right? And he he does not talk about means of production, right? Right. Is the road to failure. Now, I think that's wrong for tons of reasons. But I think it's because we have this history of failure that we're more prone to obsessively thinking if we don't get it exactly this way, if we don't do exactly this strategy and approach, it's all going to fail. That's and, my best guess for, for why. You know, I, don't, I, I think that also lines up with what I was trying to say about what we can do to answer your earlier question. And that is that I'm not certain structurally we're in a place where we can have huge victories or or change the world on some like fundamental and wide ranging area that um, I don't want to make it about personal ethics or politics or or spirituality or something, but that uh, the way it starts is by building the things that are directly in front of you and the things that you can directly do yourself. Right, which um, then in turn gives other people direct personal experience of what we're talking about. And that matters so much more, right, uh, yep. than anything else. So. Uh, the funny thing, uh, the memes, the internet, like the hist- like the, the humor. Yes. Like yes. If there, I, I will say alongside the left always eats itself is the idea that um, right-leaning politicians or right-leaning pundits have any like good sense of humor. And like, like that's, that's just like, no, no, they, they, they keep joking. Is that about, the best like, you mean? Like, is that the best you can do? Like that's you know, like so many of your comments, right-leaning people are, are like, they're so, they're so, they pill Wait, so, so much in comparison to to what to like good left Twitter humor. Okay, so this and is one of the best things about being. This is the, the best left. thing. This is oh. the best thing. Which is to say, I, what I'm saying is, is that a lot of the time you see these pundits being like the left doesn't get humor, uh, and it's like, are you like, insane? Are you even? Are you even on the same page? Like, <laughs> best, know, right? like um, the best phone. Like the best humor no, is, is the on best, the left. The best humor is the is seizing the means of, produ- of the memes production is absolutely right there. Um, so I got to say that's so it. Completely that's- true, and I never even thought about that explicitly in that sense. And it's totally true. And what I also think is funny is that people who are not on the left don't know that the left makes fun of itself. Like we have a really good sense of humor about ourselves, actually. Um, 
And I yeah. think it's because humor is a very good weapon for people that are on the outs, who are outside of power, speaking to it. No one likes your senator joking that he had dinner or that he gets a ton of money or something. That's not, <laughs> yeah, right. that's not compelling. That's not good humor. It doesn't get to the heart of things. Subversive but humor is the best humor. Subversive humor is it, – it, 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 and I think, again, that it just is, is. that is also, though – why we see so much emphasis on um uh oh uh not not dignity but what is the uh, civility civility precisely mm-hmm. because so humor undercuts civility yes and so the response is, is that you need there are things that you can't say and that you shouldn't say and it's just this nebulous civility civility because no one likes to be at the butt of the joke particularly when the joke is so good at revealing in such a precise way that they should be at the butt of that joke (laughs) humor is a good way uh, humor is a good way to reveal the truth and civility is an attempt to obfuscate and to make it uh, a moral thing that the person who revealed the truth is in fact disrespectful and bad um and Again, it's civilization and society and capitalism not being able to entertain any sort of criticism of itself that is outside of itself. It needs to incorporate and include everything that it can to continue its homogeneity. It's like, a, so cr- it's like an amoeba sucking yep. up a big blob monster. Absolutely. And then, and then once a chunk is inside of it, it can go, well, yes, with inside of, inside of me, you are allowed to have your slight variations on a theme. Okay. You can have your slightly less uh, horribly exploitative ways of creating capital within me. But outside of me, you are a thing that is outside of me, and I can't accept that there is a way of understanding or thinking about the world that is not this. I, I have to expand to include all of reality. Yep. And so that's my ultimate thing is this black cells and me and, and what you're creating is to create things for yourself outside of what society is trying to tell you must be done. Right. What are the boundaries? And that just makes me, reminds me of a great book that is really about that process in terms of the counterculture in the 60s. It's called The Conquest of Cool by Thomas Frank. And it's- Oh, damn. That does, uh, with a good title like that. Right? It's all about this. It's about capitalism just sucking up the counterculture and turning it into, you know, smiley faces and flowers and One of the most profound internet comments I read this week was an argument uh, that we've never left the culture of the 80s. That like was created. This was perhaps the last time we had interesting or different music, perhaps, and that it has been on some level a remix or a update or a modification of that. And sort of the uh, what is it? I guess like the the long was it, what the the coming on to the internet, sort of the long September of you know AO, of AOL users. <laughs> I'm, I'm really I'm really abroad there, but my point is is that it's just this con- going continuation of what we had before. Right. Um, so, well, maybe we'll see something within our lifetimes that feels genuinely new. But regardless, thank you for joining me today. And Absolutely. for the last question that I usually do about a recommendation, we're going to just take it as black sales. Black sales. 100%. <laughs> Black sales. Black sales. And I, I, I also do second that, right? Um, I am also a fan of the show and it is absolutely worth worth viewing. So thank you for joining me, Elliot. Thank you for having me, Robin. And we'll see you, um, you as in our invisible audience next time. Thanks. <laughs>